You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Hello and welcome to a one-off Line Noise. There's been a lot of episodes of Line Noise recently because we've been uh, lucky enough to find a lot of brilliant people to interview. Uh, and this one came about thanks to uh, Johan, my co-presenter on uh, the weekly review, uh, who announced to me one day he was going to be interviewing James Holden. Um, and I said, could I please, please come along because I absolutely love James Holden. Uh, and it turned into an absolutely brilliant interview. I said that not because we were doing it, just because James Holden was doing it. And he's a fascinating man um, uh, of about an hour, basically. And we could have gone on for oh so much longer. Uh, it was actually part of uh, the Daily Review, um, which is our sort of daily uh, culture and music program. Um, but I am repurposing it as a line noise, with permission of Johan, of course, um, just because I think you, you you might like it and kind of line noise reaches some different people. Uh, we talked about his new album, <clears throat> Imagine This is the High Dimensional Space of All Possibilities. Uh, we talked about Max MSP. We talked about Countryside. We talked about Norfolk. We talked about trance music. We talked about uh, recording in Marrakesh. We talked about really all kinds of things. And he is... Uh, one of the nicest people you could ever imagine. Uh, so look, I, it, it's a one-off line noise. I really hope you enjoy it. This is James Holden. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great honor here at the Weekly Review to receive an artist that uh, both Ben and I are incredible, uh, incredibly fond of as fans, as, 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 as lovers of electronic music, as lovers of transcendental music. Uh, James Holden is here with us in the studio. Hi, James. Hey, hey. And, uh, I was going to applaud. Is that? Yeah, well, we should have the sort of the the, the little applauses things. In like it, the canned laughter. You could have canned laughter. Canned laughter. <laughs> we need to work on that. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to morph into television and stuff, but for now, we're going to keep it radio. Uh, let's get into this. I mean, Spanish oh. tour. You're you're going to be playing Barcelona tonight, Madrid tomorrow, Santiago de Compostela, and Porto. Uh, where where were you playing last? I was in Italy day before yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, Milan and Bologna, and then Switzerland before that, and Germany before that, and the Czech Republic in the middle of that. Yeah. It's been nice. I haven't been home for ages. <laughs> was, uh, are you doing it all by road? Uh, mostly by train, actually. Like, oh, good. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Like, my carbon emissions for this tour have been the best of any tour. I'm so, so much gratitude for my agent and my partner for like lining all these things up so i could just hop on a train and it's good can, can i ask two questions yeah. firstly which audiences are best and secondly which which uh train services are best the trains are much easier to answer swiss trains are the best uh, I, I just, yeah like my but, friend who lives in zurich was like yeah if they're one minute late people will already be complaining <laughs> And like in England, if they're one minute late, you're. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just what it is. Yeah. I'm always amazed about the bad reputation British Rail has. <laughs> That's because you've never lived in the UK. I British know. Rail is terrible. But you know, British punctualism in Spain, we talk about British punctuality, and all of a sudden, it's like, but your like Britain's train thing, uh, train timetables are, are these, not the best. In the so world. these these ideas about the British character, like some idea of the British character and positive attributes a kind of a myth that's spread around to distract people from the main part of the british character which is we like the taste of boot and we like the <laughs> upper classes to just profit off us and that's what's happened with british Rail. they sold it off and someone's making loads of money out of not providing a service that's all it's nothing to, it's just 
corrupt capitalism. It's boring. It always happens. <laughs> it's the but, modern British story: corrupt yeah. capitalism, and yeah. But you have you have been to Japan and mm. and Japan Rail. Oh, Their right. punctuality is. It's incredible, and when the little display on the there's like a sort of speedometer in the train car in the Shinkansen, and it's like, oh my goodness, we're going like faster than an aeroplane, <laughs> and it just feels like you're riding on air as well. Just it's, yeah, they're they're the best trains, definitely. Because I remember reading that you went to that. There's a legendary synth uh, synthesizer shop in Tokyo. Uh, is is that is that in on this on this new album on um, Imagine? Actually, yeah, like. That's, I don't actually own many synths. I've always just had an issue with spending money on myself. I've just been tired <laughs> myself. So I went to this place in Tokyo called 5G, which is like legendary for... And super everything's in amazing condition. But the one I... Me and Luke Abbott were walking around trying things out and we light, lighted on a Prophet 600. They had three Prophet 600s. And he was playing one and I kind of reached up and played the next one. I was like, this one's better like, it's got something wonky about it. You play, like, a little run of notes, and one of them's a bit weird. And I was like, I want this one. And they were like, we haven't fixed that one yet. It's got something wrong with one of the voices. You can't buy it. No, I really want this one. No, right, fine. They sent it to me. And I've just, I haven't fixed it. Like, I've kept it like that. And it was on The Inheritors. It's like the synth that did that song, Renata. It's like the main synth in that. And then, but also, like, the new album, like, yeah, it's the one which plays the best riffs on the new album, to be honest. It's a magic synth. Is it your really... secret source? Kind of is. Wow. Yeah, but maybe, well, I don't know. But maybe the computer is my real secret thing. Like, my own bits of code are the real, particularly this album, have done all the work. Well, sure. I was trying to explain to Johan earlier, and not doing a very good job, what exactly Max MSP is. Because I've, I sort of, I remember when I first saw it a few years ago, I was like, what the hell is this? And somebody explained it to me very, very slowly. And I was like, okay, I think I get it. Um, but uh, you could probably explain better. Yeah, so programming is really tedious and boring. And Max MSP does all the really worst bits of it for you. So you can just think, I kind of sit down with ideas like, what if this arpeggio was like transposed by as if it was a, a weighted ball on a spring attached to the slider that I'm moving rather than directly attached. So it would kind of wobble around. And you can code that up in like half a morning and then it's happening and kind of living in your music. And so my whole music is about <laughs> building these like wacky little systems of like, what if, so trust your feet on the album. The arpeggio is the transposed point of the pitch of the arpeggio is set as if they're like locusts that have an urge to fly away from each other but they're also attached by a spring to the, and they have some kind of bouncing as well. So it's this kind of mix of like weird, like physical virtual models of like weird behavior. And then when I play it, I'm interacting with that. So I'm like, oh, I want it to go higher, but then it kind of springs too high and I'm pulling it back and then it rebounds too low. And it's, and you hear all this kind of wobbling around. And that's why the music is this like continuously moving, trippy thing. I love the idea that you don't have control. Or you kind of do, but like those bits are out of your control. It's not like you, you, you. But that's just like real instruments. So I learned the violin when I was a kid. I was never any good at it. I kind of, until I discovered like Terry, uh, Tony Conrad and John Cale and stuff like that, I just thought, I, why am I playing this? It's a curse. And I never had any control of the bloody thing. It was always squeaking. But that's the best bit about it. When you hear like Tony Conrad's playing, he just makes an art out of not being classical with it and just scraping and squeaking and finding the life in the instrument. And that's where the magic is. 
kind of same with computer. <laughs> I like, I'm very interested in your transformation from being, you know, a, a producer who worked with uh, computers and stuff and to becoming a full-fledged uh, musician performer on stage. And I understand that the your, your experience in Morocco uh, in 2014 with, I'm going to get his name wrong, sorry. Uh, Mahmoud Guinea. Mahmoud Guinea. That yeah. was a turning point because you kind of felt a little bit... Uh, You know, you were watching these musicians uh, improvise and creating this language and communicating with each other. And apparently you went to your hotel room and retweaked all your equipment so that you could perform it. Yeah. So I arrived, I'd like prepared for a week before I got to Morocco and I've been making my modular synth play these kind of Ganawa rhythms because they have a very particular swing and they kind of cross triplets and eighths in an interesting way. I really focused on that. And had this like this cool kind of drum machine kind of set up on my modular, played it to them, and they're like, oh, that's cool, we'll play along. But then immediately, they're not going to follow my tempo because Ganawa music is about like this, the tempo changes through it. That's part of its power. That's why it puts people into a trance. It's like the most powerful trance music I've ever witnessed. And I just felt like I'm not a musician. I'm just, I'm a guy with a box that isn't, it's not listening. I feel like I'm not able to listen. So yeah, I took it all to bits and made it into the synth that could like I could just perform on. And and it was better than I thought it would be. I thought it would still be awkward and difficult and maybe I'd have to edit everything when I got home. And just this moment where, oh no, I know the chords to this. I found it. And like and I could tell that he'd kind of oh yeah, like this is taking it off in a different direction to normal. But I'll work with that. And he kind of, Mahmoud Guinea was like 65 at that point, 66. And he kind of orchestrated a trance breakdown in this, the track Bania, you can get it on our band camp or whatever. It's Bania, the best one we did. And like, he cuts like his whole, band, his family are playing the the metal castanets. It's kind of really yeah. powerful percussion. Yeah. And he's kind of, got them to like cut down and me and him were like building up this kind of sawtooth synth chords and him doing the bass. And then, gives a nod to his son and they come in with all this <laughs> like, wow it was rushing it was really it was yeah it was a really exciting Good. moment in my and life it's, and it's great because you've got it on record it's how you know uh the the the, the ep what's well, an ep uh, yeah the, the ep is called uh mahaba mahaba yeah mahaba. which, which means welcome in in moroccan yeah and and he died the next year so yeah I mean, that so, so obviously what a great honor to get to play with such an important musician and how heartbreaking, but the, no, what was your emotions when you heard that? I mean, I was so sad. I mean, there's a video of the Gnawa Festival in Essaouira the last year that he played it. So, yeah, the year after I met him. And he hands his gimbri to his son, Hussam, <laughs> at the end of the... And Hussam plays one. And I was just watching it and just crying. It's like really, it's super sad. He knows... Everyone knows what's coming. And it's, yeah... Yeah, and and you got to play with his son and and record three live takes. So yeah, that was a great way of continuing. Yeah, and I've been back to Morocco, and his son's come. We've done festivals in. We did a show in London, and then we did something in Holland. Then we tried. They tried to come back to Europe, but because our, our governments changed, the English government wouldn't let them back in. Oh England. come on! No, for real. I hate it. I just hate. I'm so ashamed <laughs> of that, and it's yeah, it's, and it's for a great huge arts festival with loads of admin to make it happen they traveled across morocco to fez to the british embassy to like apply and then just got told no we're not letting in I know. We, we've Africa. missed out so on so much in these european countries because so much incredible i've, I've been to the Zawira uh, festival one year and it it just blew my mind 
And it's like every band, like there was minimum 15 people on stage and it was just like the most amazing music ever. And it's like, why don't we get to listen to... And it's like, oh, visas. Yeah. I, I find it interesting because when somebody goes to America, their visa basically has to be, right, no American... Of the 350 American, Americans can do this. Not a single yeah. one. I remember I had to write a letter in support of someone. And basically what I had to say was no one, literally no one else in America can do this. You know, yeah. and you're like, I mean, that's pretty high bar. You know what I mean? I mean but in this case... as well, because I, I got a visa for DJing and everyone can do that. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's the thing. Like, in this case, probably no one else could do what he's doing. You know, he's actually passed that bar. And it's yeah. like, mm, yeah. no, yeah. Horrible, horrible. Um, in while you were making the inheritors, you spoke of being influenced by walks through Scot- Scottish mountains and waiting to capture that vibe, uh, wanting to capture that vibe. Did specific physical spaces have any kind of influence on on Imagine? A bit, because there's like like one track has a field recording. Just me and my partner Gemma. We were during lockdown when we had no money. We stayed at my parents' house to get a holiday they'd gone on holiday and then we went to their house because we couldn't be in the same place as anyone but kind of weird times i don't even remember the rules <laughs> that anymore and yeah we got drunk and went for a walk down by the canal in the, this little village that they live in in the west country and so that's in it but like almost like but it's weird it's it's actually in it i played the chords before i, I think before i put the field recording on it the song really is about that place. It's it's hard to explain. The well, Ben was talking earlier about how Luke Abbott, uh, yeah, from Norwich, yeah, and talking about that beach. Holcomb, oh, yeah. yeah, no, th- th- this is the funny thing because I know you're not from Norfolk, yeah, um, but half the artists on Border Community, exactly. Were, yeah. And weird... as someone who, I mean, I don't live in Norfolk, I've lived there for many, many years, but as someone who's 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 from there, I always sort of see Border Community as sort of like you know a, a, a bit Norfolk, and that our Holcomb drones. Have you yeah. been to Holcomb Beach any point? I haven't actually been. Oh I've seen pictures God. of it because it's perfect. It's literally it's it's probably my favorite beach in the whole world. It's wow. absolutely amazing. And when I first listened to that album. Obviously, I'd seen the name, you know, yeah. but I was like, oh, yeah, actually, that that, yeah, that, that's like a, that makes sense. It's definitely like what what I'm into and what, you know, a lot of people on the label are into is this kind of pastoral feeling in, in music of, yeah, something that's it's really hard. I can't really articulate what it, you know, it's not a set of chords or sounds, is it? It's like a just this feeling of being outdoor, of being... Sort of not urban, of being not not rushing towards anything. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I'm surprised that you you still live in London, right? Yeah. Like you still make most of your life in London, yeah. which is I wonder like why you haven't made the plan of like moving to the countryside and building a studio in the countryside, like nearly every British musician does once <laughs> they get the chance. You know. <laughs> I am thinking about it. But there's something about London, like I can wake up and and it's like a two minute walk to the Arab supermarket and I can get amazing vegetables and, you know, go home and make myself a really good fool for breakfast or something. And it's, I'd miss that a lot. My partner is allergic to more or less everything. So she's kind of dependent on having really good food supplies around. But also, yeah, just like, yeah, London's changed a lot in the time I've lived there. And maybe it's not the dream that I thought I was moving to anymore but there's something about being really close to all the culture and just seeing stuff happen 
I think I'd feel like I'd given up a bit or like decided to get old or something by the if I checked out of that that like going to shows regularly is such a big part of if I wasn't doing that I don't know if I'd feel like a real musician like I wouldn't feel connected enough so you what like going to shows what about clubbing do you still because you've talked about the importance of dancing and and I've always seen you as a great uh uh priest of making other people dance no the high priest a high priest of making people dance but do you and your partner go out do you and Gemma I know Gemma uh, go out like certain club nights to go and check out a a DJ set and stuff do you still do that it's when I finished when I quit DJing which is 10 years ago now I kind of felt like for a while I felt like I never wanted to hear another (laughs) kick drum again like if, if random play played some dance music I'd get up find the remote skip it and then, yeah, and I didn't want to go to, I didn't have any feeling like I wanted to go to clubs at all. It was, it was so stark, this. And it was like, well, you obviously carried that on for too long. <laughs> <laughs> and then just gradually that's changed. And I've kind of, like, what I really love is getting in a trance. And dance music is really good for that. And what I started to hate was all the tropes and the cheese, just the basicness of it and kind of, but also like the, the basicness comes from the sort of capital hierarchy and the culture that that if you want to make loads of money, you've got to appeal widely. And yeah, and just all these kind of effects, you know, if you're doing that, you've got more money to spend on marketing yourself and you can get ahead and, yeah. and et cetera. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't want to be having dinner with Sven Bates. <laughs> you know, it's no offense to them, but, but just like that's not what I wanted my life to be like. And so... Yeah, it all got mushed together in my mind as a set of negative correlations. And then eventually it just comes back and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I I saw like Oceanic DJing and um, Lucas from Wigflex DJing and they were just incredible. I was just properly tripped out by it and just I kind of wanted to know what all the records were and then I didn't ask a single one just to keep it a mystery. But I wonder sometimes, do you have this, this, this problem in a way because you've been making electronic music for such a long time is it quite hard sometimes for you to listen to something and not be like ah oh, that's you know a three or three that's a juno and yeah. they you know they've definitely oh that's an effect in ableton or whatever that i recognize to, to sort of get yeah. your mind away from it and the sort of like yeah when i first heard dance music it was like everything was new like I went to a club and every every song was ideas I'd never heard before and everything was blowing my mind and and I thought the whole thing would be like that forever but it was a continuous I guess the kind the time when I got into it in the 90s lots of things were happening like drum and bass appeared out of nowhere I'll probably be something amazing and new next year too and then it doesn't I've had to adapt how I understand it and I started to understand it like it's folk music and it's not so much that this is really a new record. It's just a new version of, oh, it's the house tune with a Hoover bass line. You've done it a little bit differently, but it's basically, it's the house tune with a Hoover bass line. And kind of just relaxing and being like, well, that's what it is. And the real value of it is the doing it, that someone's performing it, people are listening to it. That's more important than kind of the, this is a new intellectual property. Again, it's kind of a capitalist nonsense that it's about making money out of the thing, and it's a, that's obviously about to go out the window of AIs eating intellectual property for breakfast. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe I don't know. I'm still working through it. 
It's because it always just struck me how, you know, you, you sometimes you get building these festivals, which were like, you know, big business techno festivals or whatever. And, and you, you know, you were always, you'd always manage to just keep like it's your hour or two hours or three hours, you know, it would be this, this sacred little spot between like some, sometimes you'd be sandwiched in between like kind of cheesy DJs. I don't want to, I don't want to mm, uh, uh, disrespect uh, any other DJs and stuff. I think, you know, I've, yeah. I can enjoy a bit of business techno someday, whatever, but, <laughs> but so, you'd be sandwiched in these, and I'd imagine you'd have to go to the dinner and, and, and go in the van with these, and it's like, how you could uh, be in that profession for so long, it always struck me. Like, you, you were very patient. <laughs> you were very patient, no? <laughs> and that's you. the way it is. It's like, that's the circuit. And obviously, you'd get, you'd get very well paid for it because you, you, know, you had your prestige. Mm, at, in those moments of, obviously not during the pandemic because no one could perform, but moments when you, you know, it's an easy check for you. Like, you could just tell your agent, look, I'm available for DJ bookings. Mm -hmm. What, you've never been sort of tempted or even out of like, you know what, I, I wouldn't mind DJing again out of just for fun because it's because it's easy for you. Yeah, in a way, it's not. That's the thing to do it good. Yeah. It's got to be your full time. I don't think I could do it when I was doing it. It was basically taking all my time and I wasn't really making very many records or doing that much else with my life. And like it's so much work to just be on top of the music, to understand how it all fitted together mm. and kind of. So I can't, I, I have actually done ambient sets since, but like super small things, like I sort of thought about, oh, maybe I could do like weird, you know, eclectic DJing or something. And, and I asked, I did, you're right. I did ask my agent, is it possible? And someone did offer something. And I just felt like, no, like I'd feel like a fraud, a sham, embarrassed. I couldn't go and stand on this huge stage and just be playing records unless that was, you know, unless I was really focused on being really good at that. And yeah, I think to some extent, I was just a little bit bigger than I should have been. <laughs> Maybe like playing, you know, like it did work, but it was a fight. And yeah, if I was a bit smaller, there's less fighting involved in it. Unless, yeah, maybe an easy life is nice. <laughs> no, because then you get to play that, you know, that, that Italian festival. Is it Club to Club in Torino? Yeah, yeah. That, that's always got an incredible lineup and stuff. And, you know, you... And there's there's plenty of those events happening all year round all over the world enough to sort of yeah, but the real at the end of my DJ career I decided I was when I was touring like I didn't have a live show to tour the Inheritors when it first came out so I was like what I'll do is I'll do all night sets and just play like the breadth of the influences of the record and try and like make this world into like an eight hour thing and I'll do it at my favorite clubs that I've ever played and we started making lists and then it was eight clubs like. Okay, well, that's quite a short list, isn't it? <laughs> like that's it. So it's there's only certain places where you can really, you know, you can sit at 100 BPM for three hours, and people will go with that and yeah. not be like, "Come on, James!" Like, when you <laughs> but you know, John Talibot. Yeah, he's he's doing it. He did it. He did right at the when pandemic was starting to be well, the restrictions were starting to loosen out. He did a a sunset set here yeah. at, here at the forum where we do the Primavera Sound festival and he did it for what was it six hours well the whole night i mean i don't know what yeah six he, hours yeah. till 12 because the, the the curfew was 12 midnight so he's i think it started no he might start, no he might have been four hours yeah. i can't remember anyway and he had a and he had a visual he had he'd filmed the sunset and he managed to sync it in time so that it, it, the sun would would 
completely set by the time it was 12 o'clock. And he didn't go above 110. Like he wow. started off at 100 or even 98. And 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 obviously John Talbot. Whenever he does anything, he everyone goes. You know, and plus mm. nothing had been happening all summer. Yeah. So he's pulled. He pulls it off. He manages to pull it off. Sometimes he won't do it at Deckman Tell, but uh, may he rest in peace, Andy. No, yeah. Yeah. And Weatherall. Weatherall. Yeah. Weather, he, he was doing this like super slow. Yeah, space. yeah. And it was starting to gain momentum. Like people were actually going to clubs expecting, like, yeah, the maximum is going to get is 110. Yeah, but I wonder if it's kind of gone back after, like, after sort of COVID, because it seems to me like we're like people are like, oh, Clubberland's going to change after COVID. And I don't go to many clubs, you know. I'm, I'm, mm. But I, I don't get the impression everything's changed and it's all like a lot more respectful. I get the impression that like it's oh. it's very much you know all the hits now, all the DJs, and that's fine, I guess. But yeah it's gone through i've so it's been fun because now i don't really feel like i'm in the club world i'm just kind of existing floating free or something so i keep meeting people from my past over this tour like promoters who brought me in the past and there's just an and actually an axe from that scene i've kind of met up with a few people i knew there's been this universal complaint of like oh the kids are like like a mix of things like everything's too fast <laughs> everything's like got acapella like people complaining about it being very poppy and very and one guy said the kids don't even take proper drugs like we <laughs> and acid they're taking letters and numbers they buy off the dark web <laughs> like, okay granddad <laughs> That's, I mean, it's all fine like i saw uh heartstring and i saw um and that was pretty good actually it was like a lot of fun i'm I don't really dance very quickly or very much to be honest i'm more of a sort of stone swayer than anything else yeah. and it was faster than I can handle but it made sense I mean it was it was quite cool the music they were playing it kind of reminded me of mid 2000s stuff but just 10 bpm faster or something but it is really interesting seeing how different moments of time get mashed together in ways that to me that's like that's wrong you've put like two completely contradictory scenes together within two records but that Ah, you got away with it, it worked, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's, and that's where something new is going to come out of, people who don't fully have this like weight of history holding them back. And it's not my place to tell them they're wrong. I think that's what I think about it. I'm still processing. I wanted to ask a bit about, if I may, your relationship with, with trance music. Because we kind of like touched on it earlier and you talked about you know music that could genuinely put you in, into, into a trance. And I mean, you started off making music that was, and I'm sorry to make sort of quote marks, but kind of trance music in yeah, a way, you know, the, yeah. like what people know by trance-ish. I mean, like, yeah. um, and how do you see that music? Do, do you still like, enjoy your early productions? Do you sort of ever play them? Do you? I, I don't actually put them on, but if they come on, I'm quite, I feel quite warm about them, definitely. Um, and... I mean, more so the music of that era that I was influenced by. I just feel completely, like, no negative feelings at all about that stuff. Up till, like, trance music up until the sort of Ferry Corsten moment where all the Hoovers came out and it became a bit formulaic. Like, up until then, it was beautiful and pure. And there's, like, there was a compilation my physics teacher taped for me called Trance Europe Express, Volume mm. 1. It's got, like, a dolphin on the cover or something like that. And everything on it is gold. And it's all, it's deep as anything. It's got warp kind of music on it. 
Like it basically, it would. I was into trance and warp, and they, to me, they were the same thing. Like it just all joined up in one continuum. I don't see any kind of disconnect between these things. And then suddenly, like now, you say that people look at you funny. Like that doesn't. They don't belong together. And it's that divergence is. That's kind of yeah. It's the very cost and. The problem. I, th- I think I had Trans Europe Express Volume Two. It was like it came with like a booklet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, had well, Volume like Two for yeah. education about. And in them days, you couldn't go on the internet and read about stuff. So I had this booklet and was like reading about Throbbing Gristle, and I had Trans Atlantic as well, and that had like all about like a lot of the Detroit guys and a lot about Richie Horton because he was good at talking about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of, yeah, that was all I knew about that music. That was the f- sum total of my knowledge for a while. And then, yeah, then you learn a bit more. <laughs> but there, there was, there's been, there has been, there is, I don't, I don't know, like a bit of a trance revival and mm. like goa trance and things like that. Are you surprised that it's kind of coming back? No, I'm happy. It's good. I think it's, yeah, it's really good music. And it had been abandoned because of like stupid snobberies and stuff. Like, I remember trance blew up and then progressive house came along for people who were too clever for trance. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's it's not it was boring. It was really and it I I often felt even up to recent times when Lorenzo Senni was doing his thing with like these look I'm editing this really bad taste music and now I'm in the wire. There's some aspect of of sneering at trance that it's it's working class music. It's it's popular music and it's it's not those things it's not well it's those things aren't something that you can legitimately sneer about but also it's not some of that trance stuff was just did belong next to the warp records in terms of like what it was doing musically and sonically i think to be i don't think lorenzo senni has said that i I think he's quite the way other people talk about him yeah he's sorry yeah there's a little bit of him going oh it's kind of bad taste isn't it and and I'm so ironic, also in his early interviews, maybe. But then, yeah, I've seen other people talking about it in this way that kind of betrays something. That, <laughs> but you've been a bit like that about your own stuff. Like I remember pressing you about, like, because you know, my girlfriend and I, we were, we we were totally like so many thousands of people. We were obsessed with your remix of "The Sky Was Pink," and you said, oh, "I'm not playing that ever again." You know, you were really yeah. sort of. But is there a part of you as James Holden, the artist, who has all these fans and people who've been following you for your entire career, when now that you're playing shows, obviously not Sky Was Pink, I'm talking about earlier material, uh, that you sort of feel that... Uh, uh, you're not a pop artist, but that part of being an artist that is popular, where you have to sort of cater a little bit to the fans, do, do, you, st- do you ever concede? Do you yeah, ever sort con- of think, yeah, I'm going to play something from the past? It doesn't feel like conceding, I think, because it's like I couldn't, I won't be playing The Sky Was Pink in my live sets because it's just a remix. It would feel like a fraud. But when I was DJing, I couldn't play that again and feel genuine because I'd worn it out for me. Like it didn't, when you're DJing, you play something and you want to be part of that enthusiasm. And if you're just feeling totally cold about it, then you're a lie. And I couldn't ever, I'd never wanted to be in that position. But I'm just grateful for the way people feel about things. And when you like, when you drop one of the old ones that people like, and the first notes come in, and you pull the filter up on something, and and people recognise it, like I'm with the, I'm this nice, like I really like, yeah, oh great, you're happy to hear this. I'm really happy, you're happy. You know, it's a nice feeling, and like, yeah, I love that. It's, 
Because before we started recording, you were saying that, oh, there's tracks of The Idiots Are Winning that you'd like to play in this new live setup that you have. But you can you can you tell us about why you could why it might be difficult? So, yeah, like, uh, for example, Lump off that tr album, that was based off a soft synth that ran in Buzz, which I could I tr it's still around, but I couldn't get it to work on my new PC. So everything becomes obsolete. And all of that album was done in a version of Cubase that I've lost the dongle for that doesn't install on new PCs anymore anyway, and all the plugins are out of date. And so to get back to these, I've got the file, but it doesn't open on anything. And I really, there's one song off the album, Idiot, I really want to do. And I've just got to work out the notes from scratch. Like I've just got to sit there listening to it. When I was a kid, I used to play like, play like four bars of Metallica, run through to the room where the piano was and then try and work out what the chords were and then like run back, try again until my parents got sick of the first four bars and nothing else matters. <laughs> Can you play it now? Have you learned it? Um, it's gone. My, my memory is like a, you know. Because on, on this last record, you're playing drums, you're playing, how many instruments are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> when you were recording I don't know, it. Like a whole sort of Mike Oldfield sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like drums, bass, guitar, piano, violin, uh, synth, recorder, hand percussion. But then I got some proper musicians in to do when it needed to be. There's two kinds of recording. There's one where I sit down at the drums and just have accidents. And then those accidents are quite funky sometimes. And I cut them all together and it sounds good. Or I get someone who's like Tom Page plays drums on one track and he just had to have one take and there was no editing. <laughs> it was fine. And uh, yeah, Camilo Tirado comes in to play tablas on something. And yeah, like proper having the proper musicians doing like really good jobs is is a big part of it. Yeah. Well. yeah. No, and I imagine like there's, you've got a long list of people who, who, who are available and glad to come in. But I understood that you, you laid down marathon live takes and then... As you said, you 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 scissored and stitched uh, them together, and then re-recorded everything once more. Does that mean when you when you actually brought the musicians in, or why would you re-record? Uh, it's not so much re-recording. Like yeah, like I was using the original takes. It's like recording. So the previous album, the Animal Spirits, mm -hmm. I had this dogma that it was all going to be live because there's something really magic when people are in a room. Say the three of us would were jamming. Mm. There's a feedback, you know, like you're feeding back off what the other two people are doing, I'm feeding back off. And this, it generates kind of in like maths, information theory terms, that kind of feedback setup generates lots of like rich, correlated, meaningful detail, chaos, good chaos. And if we did it as separate takes, then I'd play my thing and I wouldn't have any influence from YouTube because you'd be putting it on afterwards. So mm. there wouldn't be this kind of complicated network of feedback and correlation between everything that happened in the music. And so The Animal Spirits was about catching that, but it's kind of frustrating to do that because you're stuck. Like, I've blown my entire recording budget. Everyone's gone home. <laughs> I wish I'd done one more take of that track. And I said I wouldn't do any edits, so I'm really stuck with it. <laughs> and so and I read this interview with um, Mark Hollis, and him talking about how there's two kinds of, it's two opposites that improvise music like that and studio production on the other end of the scale where you're like piecing everything together. And it's very conscious and kind of, and I wanted to find something that's like in between. So every take is a live take. Whenever there's a musician on it, I tried to do something where I played with them and like, you know, where possible. But then 
I didn't have this rule that there's no edits. And if you take these live takes and crash them into each other, just like move, slip them across. And like that happened. And then 10 minutes later that happened. But what if they happened at the same time? Oh my God, that's amazing. And it's these, then the coincidences of crashing stuff together and kind of overlaying things and, and building. That's where I can find more making the weird surprises and the atmosphere and the kind of place feeling of the record comes from that kind of process. Sorry if this is a stupid question, but you said um, that you you'd said no edits. Yeah. Given that it was your record, couldn't you just be like, "Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna edit it." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I'd written this whole manifesto, so I didn't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> like, not that I told anyone apart from my friends, but, but it did. If I'd have let myself do loads, it would have completely changed the record, and it would have been a different thing. And then, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask about maths as well, maths and music, because. Yeah. Um, you studied maths at Oxford. Yeah. Um, my dad, who uh, was a maths teacher, always said mathematicians are very good at music. Yeah. Um, is that something you've 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 seen in your life? I mean, and and where's the sort of overlap? I think I mean they're both abstract structures that I know some people who are amazing at music and they're terrible at maths and mathsy thinking. And they're just amazing at music. So it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There may be multiple ways of being good at music. Have you read The Glass Bead Game, the Herman Hess book? No. I feel like that's a book about... It's worth reading. It's a book about DJing. Just bear that in mind and then go and read it. I mean, obviously it's not about DJing, but, it kind of, but it's this kind of... Good old Herman Hess closing, yeah. closing Bergheim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Way before Sven was at the door. Yeah, exactly. He's not dropping pop acapellas, I say. <laughs> but like, yeah, like it is. There definitely is. But also, music is related to language, and I'm quite bad at language. I think, like my my, I struggle to write things that are very good or whatever. And so, I think there's different overlaps in your brain with, yeah, with musical ability, definitely. <laughs> Because, funnily enough, he's also terrible at music, but he, he always had this thing, because we'd always laugh at him for like being, being good at maths, but his music was, uh, <laughs> was, was genuinely terrible. But I, I've been fascinated with it ever since. I've been like looking into various um, musicians, and there is quite a lot, I'm trying to think. I think Fortet studied maths as well. Yeah, I think he dropped out of university because he was doing so well, whereas I wasn't doing... <laughs> I mean, I was doing terribly at university, so it was really wasting my time to stay there. But, but yeah. Yeah, there is also maybe there's a... Because shark attacks at the beach are correlated with ice cream sales in, in Australia. <laughs> but they're not linked. It's the weather is that if it's sunny, then people are in the water and they're buying ice cream. So, there's, you know, so that's the link. And I think maybe with maths and music... The mystical third thing might be autism. That right. I have felt that a lot of musicians I've worked with have had a lot of autistic traits, and it, that often points in that direction. I mean, I'm not an expert, and I don't want to overgeneralize. So tonight you're you're playing at Rasputin. It's a Monday night. Do you yeah. do you sort of change what you do for the the night i mean would it be very different on a on a friday night or a saturday as opposed to a monday or it depends it's more that i would change what i do depending on what the room feels like and it's nice playing live because you can kind of particularly with this my set is quite free the control i have over it and for example a couple of days ago it was a really reverby hall 
And I felt like, so the first song, I just kind of avoided using the sounds which would sound bad in that space and kind of made the most of the sounds which would sound nice in that space and then kind of twisted it around and got to the point of the song as well. But it's really fun to be able to twist it around like that and change it. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it kind of depends. If people feel really ravey, then it gets it gets more heads downy. But yeah, I'm happy, this music, I'm lucky, really that it doesn't need to be mega thumping to deliver its energy. Mm. And it kind of, yeah, you don't need to, you know, done a Friday night blowout to get the most out of it, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Well, Border Community turns 20 this year. Yeah. Uh, what's it, is it still full? Have you, re, uh, have you accomplished the dreams that you had when you started the label 20 years ago? <laughs> I guess... I learned that those dreams were more complicated than I thought they were. Like, I, when we started the label, I'd just come out of being ripped off by the worst, scummiest, like, used car salesman kind of independent label nightmare story. And so the big goal of the label was to be free, to be, like, not to have an A&R idiot going, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that, and not to have someone stealing all the money and running off with it, mm. and to kind of provide that for my friends. And And so in that sense, yeah, it worked, like everyone that was around in that moment i managed to provide them with like a little platform and some of them took it and ran with it some of them took it and ran with it for a bit and then stopped and some of them it didn't quite work out but it we did what we hoped to do but then it everything changes as as time goes on and when it became a big hypey label then the kind of people that were approaching us were different to the kind of people we started out with and the label they wanted it to be was a different thing to what we thought it was going to be. And then you're managing those expectations and kind of just, yeah, like it had to, we were naive, to be honest, to think it could carry on exactly the same and, and keep that purity. And in the end, when I stopped DJing, I realized like then it just has to change. Like it can't be the same label because if I'm not a DJ, I can't test, I, I can't launch this stuff. I had such, I was so grateful for this kind of audience of people who were really paying attention. And I'd play a new track and people would be like, what's that? That's new, what's that? And kind of, that's great, but also kind of a pressure on things as well. But when, you know, when I stopped DJing, I, could, I no longer had this kind of attentive audience that I could promo things to, kind of seed ideas and, and push things. So, so it had to become this different thing, like an album's label, an idea, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, and yeah, I don't know where it's going, honestly. Like the music industry is in a weird place. And coming back to do this album, I've loved certain bits of it, playing the shows, meeting people, talking to people about music, making the music, hanging with the other musicians, talk, you know, just people's reactions to it, that feeling of connecting to people. It's all amazing. But every little bit of dealing with the music industry, Gemma and I have just been like head in hand, <laughs> like, do we... God, like, do we have to a sponsored Instagram post? Really? Like, that's what that's what I got into. <laughs> but have you ever, would you be good at having a team of delegates running it? You know, some people who no, because it would change it. Because then you've got to then the whole machine needs to support the whole machine, and yeah. then that would change the music. And I'm so lucky to have reached this point where I can just be quite pure about this is what I believe in, this is what I'm excited in, mm. and that's that just defines everything. So it. It has to exist on this quite shoestring budget, low level. Yeah. But that's good. That's that is more comfortable, definitely. Yeah. Do you, 
do you still get like loads of demos trying to sound like how you sounded, you know, 15 years ago? <laughs> it has dropped off actually. Like those, it took a really long time to drop off. And there's, I mean, Gemma was keeping a book for a while, just full of like, but like other labels would sign these people. Occasionally she'd look, she'd look something up and go, oh, Compact have signed Derivative Sky Was Pink. Oh, you've got to publish this book. <laughs> what is it? That Domino track from Oxia, isn't it? That is just a blatant. I, I, I like it. You know, it's it's. it's there's like, oh yeah, this is very Sky Was Pinky. Yeah, it's like, that is the most obvious. There are a few people who I got really angry at, and again, that's a waste of my energy. I shouldn't have bothered getting angry at. Really, they were just trying to make it, and yeah, there's a yeah, and it's flattering. I guess it is huh? flattering, and yeah, and it's really. There's that Ted Chiang article about artificial intelligence, and he says you're not scared of artificial intelligence; you're scared of capitalism. And in, and when people are making photocopies of stuff, kind of the problem isn't you know they just wanted to do it. The fact that it's in my face and they're trying to sell it is the problem. And yeah, yeah it's <laughs> does does that pretty much sum up how you feel about AI in general? Like, yeah, I I used to be really excited about technology and the new things I could do with it. And there's been a schism that I'm not, I'm just scared of it now. And I've played with some AI tools and because I'm so into building these kind of algorithmic things where if you build an algorithmic thing, it's like an instrument. It's not a mystery black box. It's something you can learn to play. And even the coolest AI music things that I've played with have felt like a black box. And like I could play this for ages and I wouldn't be getting closer to really realizing my intentions from what I've done with it. So I haven't, Although I'm really amazed, that's really clever. I'm just terrified by what it's going to do. And yeah, we need a world without billionaires. <laughs> did did you, when you were playing around with, with AI, did you at any point ask it to make a track that sounded like you? <laughs> no, so I haven't tried any of these prompt-based right. ones because that just seems so anathema to the process of music making that it just wouldn't, it's nothing to do with it. It's just shopping or something. It's, it's another kind of search something. Or, yeah. yeah. Like you, you kind of hope that it's like, oh, if artificial intelligence can take all the data to find the cure for cancer because it studies cells and stuff, wouldn't that be great? But all it is is just going to be like an, uh, a, a shortcut for capitalist ventures to, to sell you shit, basically. And yeah. you know, it's like when you see uh, the, the other day, someone was showing me uh, as if Freddie Mercury would have sung "Heaven" by Brian Adams, and it was very convincing. He's like. Yeah, but it's fake. Uh, that I quite like. I, so, sorry, I've got to say that that kind of thing of getting people to. I, what I don't like is if they kind of go and make derivative things, like make a song like the Beatles. But when it's actually like make Freddie Mercury sing this song, I've got to say I quite like that. I like the idea of could I have the Smiths back catalogue, but with Morrissey completely removed, <laughs> and then I can just enjoy Johnny Marr for a bit. <laughs> Plus one on that, I'm definitely. <laughs> yeah, that was, but. If I was Freddie Mercury and someone had reanimated my corpse to make it sing Brian Adams, mm. I'd be annoyed. <laughs> I mean, he's turning it. It did grave, sound good, it? like in his voice. Like it did. I have to admit, there's like it doesn't sound bad, you know. And it's, <laughs> and it's but it's like when we, you know, you you watch a hologram of Tupac and people that mm. would be included in like you've paid a what was it Coachella? You've paid all this money to go to a festival. You don't have to watch it. It's not like oh you're getting, but. I don't know, it's just a debate, isn't it? I think the moment when Kanye reanimated Kim's dad, dad to say, uh, yeah. hey, Kim, 
Kanye's a really good guy. I brought your I brought your dad back. Yeah, like that's that. <laughs> I mean, that told us that's the whole. We don't need to really think about this subject anymore. That's yeah. that's the end point of <laughs> just this brutal, monstrous, narcissistic. Yeah, <laughs> that was the end of his. I guess that's the, when the marriage really sort of thought. You know, like, oh, poor woman. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it came from a nice place. You know, you're trying to bring my father back. It's just, ter- it's just so wrong. It's grim, isn't it? It was so cringy. Uh, talking of pop, talking of pop, we're, we're fascinated, right? Uh, what it is like to remix someone like Britney Spears or, or Madonna. Or, or Madonna. Yeah. Like, I mean... Because I imagine there's a lot of bureaucracy and agents and all these uh, people, like, rubbing their fingers in between. Yeah, I guess they're probably... So... That bit of my career was the the brief window where I had a, I thought I should have a manager and I got a manager for a little while and then it was kind of it became obvious that I wasn't so interested in those kind of things and we parted ways amicably, but yeah like the Britney thing it's like the people who produced the Britney had the idea they could ask me and it was it was like someone from dance music who'd done it who I kind of knew and so that's why I considered it. and Madonna. What I heard was that her hairdresser had been playing her my stuff and she asked and I was like, I just can't see any connection with this song. And then she came back with the second single off the album and then the third. And so on. The third one I could kind of say, well, there's something I could do here. And, did it. and it is interesting to do. Those ones, like Britney and Madonna, were just super fun to do because they're, they're really distinctive artists. Their voice, you could take half a syllable of Britney and it's still obviously Britney. Madonna has said so much in her career that her words carry some weight and like stretching them around felt like I'm doing, yeah, that's clever, that's funny. And they just accepted what I did. Like on the Madonna fan forums, I found a thread where they, they a lot of people thought mine was the worst ever Madonna <laughs> remix just by a long shot. It's fine, I don't mind. Some people like it and it's it's okay. Because I I'd like pulled the legs off and like really stretched, what is Madonna? Like, what is this? And And here's a really trippy song about that. But then remixing Depeche Mode, which you'd think would be, oh, that's cool. That was awful. Why? Like an A&R from, like I did it, I thought this is great. I'm really, like their new material's not quite as good as their old material. It was a bit of a stretch to make sense of the song. But then I kind of got to something and I was like, this is cool. I'm really pleased with this. Sent it in. It's a bit weird. Could you do it? Could you bring the kick drum in earlier? Could you mix it a bit different? Could you change it around? And it's not, I don't think the band, I don't even know if the band had listened to it, but it's, you know, an A&R man at a big label. Yeah. He knows what he's talking about. He's a professional A&R man. He can tell me how to write a record. But like nothing... <laughs> it's really annoying. I was so destroyed. Yeah. But nothing from, like, from Madonna and Britney was like, yeah? Yeah, just in totally. I got a message back. Yeah, Madonna gets it. She sees what you've done. She likes it. I think it's one, it's one of my favourite of your remixes. Thanks, I, I still yeah. play it cool, from cool. time to time. And, and that Mercury Rev one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was really fun to do. And that was the first thing I did properly using my modular and using Ableton and getting into this like, oh, this can go a bit wild. Like, it was like really, it was a fun learning process. Probably I'd have done it different if I'd have done it again now or, you know, a year yeah. after or something. But yeah, they let me get away with this. And it was when I was in this whole sort of kraut rock phase it's never ended <laughs> do you consider yourself a utopian that's an interesting question oh. i 
Yeah, yeah, I guess I am. Like, if you're not aiming for some kind of... Like, it's naive to think you'll ever get to a utopia. But if you're not aiming for it, what are you doing? Like, if you're not pushing for something better than this <laughs> and look around this, then what you've given up or you're, you're complicit in it or something. Mm. So it's, it seems like a sort of, it's your duty to, to do that in whatever. I mean, I have very limited power in the world. I'm just a guy who's like a little bit good at computers and slightly good at music and got a little bit of assets and some people know my name. It's not much power to change anything. I can do my best. You know. Well, you're doing a fine job because, you know, your music brings people together and there's this, you know, this this medicinal trance-like quality. Sorry for sounding cheesy, but it's... Well, you that know, is really true, that trance you know, is, is medicine. It's, it I is. Mean, I was with the, when I went back to play with Hussam Guinea in Morocco, they, after one of these shows we did, they were like, well, that was nice, James, thanks for doing the show. We're off to play Alila now, which is like the Ganawa religious ceremony would you like to come wow and so me and camillo went and just it was incredible seeing the power of this music in a like a, a social setting like it's all generations kid like young people really old people families all together handing out food kind of and then in the middle of it people just going into a full trance and like flailing passing out waking up weeping like just dealing with all their internal things using this kind of socially coded ritual of the music and the trance to do it. And it's incredible, like, just, yeah, I can't really put across how powerful it felt, this kind of... And I think, actually, like, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it really isn't to say that when people go to a club and take themselves through quite extreme mental states, it's the same process that they're going through. They're dealing with what's happened yeah. to them in life in a certain way that's why i've always i'm always kind of waiting for because clubs have become this sort of bottle service vip area you know they've ruined ib well, some of them some of them some of them yeah. not you know not yeah. great Nizza, for instance you know it's a good club you know but still sometimes the experiences go you order your drink and you're there looking at the dj you can dance and stuff but i like it more when it's open air and you're you know you're in a field i remember in festival it was inside the forest and you know you're in contact with nature and you're seeing like technology and lights lighting up trees and then you know it's beautiful and it's sensorial and if you take your doses and stuff you're <laughs> you're, you're in it um have you ever thought of going a step further for instance you were into popol vu and all the bands you yeah. know all the crowd, crowd rock bands a lot of them lived in communes and they kind of tried to create their utopias not only just make music and get it out there they were actually making a lifestyle out of it and you know i'm going to quote you saying <laughs> are you am i a hippie now no what was it what were you, you you were sort of making fun of yourself i think in an interview uh, it's just right at the okay. top oh so you're a stoner hippie are you uh, yeah yeah uh, but no but okay, but, but, but <laughs> yeah but but have you know but it is especially in pan after during pandemic so many people thought we're buggered if we're gonna depend on like supermarket chains and stuff what if like there's an gasoline shortages if, mm. if the petrol tankers aren't arriving and uh you know we need to sort of everyone started thinking about moving out to nature and growing their own food and stuff like you know people in communes have been doing have you ever had that conversation with your partner we have thought about it the lesson of border community of how it changes you can start a thing and then it changes under you 
it's definitely filled me with some caution about setting up a commune, but that would face the same problems. I've watched films about communes and it's a complicated thing and requires a lot of social skills and emotional maturity. So maybe I'll grow up enough to be able to do it in the next 10 years, maybe. Mm. We'll see. But it's, yeah, it would be really nice to have, I mean, kind of it would be nice to have, to, I'd like to, what the label did in like enabling people to have a platform to sort of start off, yeah, you could do that with a sort of farmhouse studio or something. Maybe that's where I'm going. We'll mm. see. We'll see. I mean, we're, not, we're, we're always dreaming about it, like, because we're surrounded by lovely little villages here in Catalonia with all, you know, which are practically half abandoned. And, and you know, they're not that expensive if you formed like a little uh, co op cooperativa of friends who are yeah. like, look, we'll just get savings and get. And then, but you have to involve capitalism by offering like uh, bed and breakfasts. So like a, or an art gallery space or something for people. Did you watch Wild Wild Country? I haven't seen that. No. Oh boy. They yeah. made oh. millions. Uh, it's it's very recommended. Watch it. But that gave me a thought. It's like okay, they went wrong in many ways. Machine guns. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot of ways. <laughs> as soon as they brought Jeez. machine guns into <laughs> the equation like and started like burning down buildings of like people who were trying to like take them down, they, you know, they started a little war on American soil. Wow. Please don't recommend living like that well no but the parts that they did right is like they all they celebrated a, an annual festival with people coming to meditate with osho uh but and they, they weren't cheap the tickets but they weren't uh, they weren't like impossible either it wasn't just for the like the rich people to come to you know it was affordable for you know people that like if you know same as people who come to primavera sound you know spend whatever on a ticket well people would go to this year festival and they'd make a killing out of it and they'd sell merchandise all in the good cause. And it was to sustain the commune and people were, you know, it, it kind of worked in that aspect. So, you know, you sort of you sort of pick bits and think it could be possible. But maybe if you become too big, bit you less start, guns, bit less uh, guns some out. of their rituals, leave the guns <laughs> out. And obviously you have to, you can't be closed off from the rest of the world Like you have to open your doors and like offer i don't know yeah it can be done it's really yeah it's a really my friend sent me a link about someone talking about building resilient organizations and you know this kind of the structures that you need to build for change and accountability and stuff and it's complicated it like that's you, you need to be grown up and serious and put the work into that mm. so yeah maybe one day yeah i'm still growing up like honestly like you know just am. I'm, I'm, I've still got a lot to learn about being a human. <laughs> <laughs> are you? Are you? Are you good at being a response? You know, a, a record label owner uh, in in control of your career and oh, I well actually, I heard a very sad story about you know Gemma and you taking care of your your dog. Yeah. In while it was very sick during the pandemic, and uh, I'm sorry about that because it's, I've I've lost uh, pets and. It is the heartbreak is just it's, 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 you can't really describe it but you you brought a new life into your you've got a new yeah got, we, we rescued another dog called Heidi yeah. she's excellent she's really cool she's uh, and she's very happy yeah. uh, she's like got confident now she's moved in it's great so so making this album was that a way of dealing with the sorrow from it really was like actually the demos were made in the time we were like looking at he had bladder cancer buster our last dog and so and we were living in the studio because our house was falling down so we'd, we'd 
had builders come in and they'd like demolished it and then the pandemic started <gasps> and we ran out of money. So it was, like, it was, it wasn't the nicest time of our lives, but like, but it was super intimate. We were just in, you know, living in two rooms and kind of looking after the dog, getting up. You'd have to get up loads of times in the night to take him out to the loo and stuff like that. But then just I was making demos. That was kind of all we were doing, like just kind of living, looking after the dog, making demos. And it just felt like a really, yeah, we did feel really sort of like a close unit in that time. And then when he died, I was I didn't really feel like making music for months. It was, was really six months at least before I picked it up again. And then it was all, I was like, oh, it's all finished. I don't really need to do very much. <laughs> Which would be the track that, that was you know sort of i don't know your your love letter to, to buster or it's kind of like the whole thing is yeah, right. is touched by him but there's one particular track in the end you'll know which has got these kind of ethereal organs at the start and it's really connected to buster just in because the original i was using this recording technique that luke abbott had pioneered on his translate album that he'd recorded earlier a couple of years before in my studio where you just put loads of speakers around and I've got, I found some speakers by the bins in the industrial estate. I've got like some nice seventies tannoy speakers, a couple of PA speakers, um, my monitor speakers, some like cheap little, like, you know, rubbish little box speakers. You spread them all around the studio, different rooms, different corners of the room, whatever. And then one sound goes to each speaker. And so it's as if your, your drum machine is a person in that corner of the room. Your baseline is a person in that corner of the room really helps you like write the music because it's kind of spatial but having it spatialized like that like separates the parts out and you kind of and you get it sounding good in the room which is a part of you know you kind of mix it as you make it by just making the room feel good and then you put a pair of stereo mics in the middle of the room and capture it so i was doing that with this ethereal organ part and i had mics out in the foyer of the studio which is like a big kind of hauly kind of reverb and it was beautiful for a while. And then on the recording, it's interrupted by Gemma going, oh, I just took you out. And then the door goes, <laughs> and that's the end. Of so every time I'd listen to this, oh, this is so beautiful. I can kind of, I'm on the verge of hearing some chords under it that really set it off. And then it gets to, oh, poor Buster. I felt really sorry for him. And I would kind of it would lose the feeling. And then after months and months of just trying and trying and never really finding anything to go with it, before it got to that moment, I turned the prophet on and gone, da, 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 da. oh yeah, here we go. <laughs> kind of, the whole song was kind of written before it had played through to the sort of 15th minute of that original stem. <laughs> well, thank, that's, that's, uh, yeah, we've, we've been here for an hour. Yeah, oh. great. The longest uh, we've done in a while. Wow. Okay. It's cool. a total pleasure. Uh, playing tonight. Talk, Play, yeah. Playing tonight. So get, get, uh, get over to Razzmatazz 3, Madrid tomorrow in Salatango, Santiago de Compostela after that, Oporto. James Holden, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And it's been nice talking to you. Thank <laughs> you. Enjoy.